If you haven't done so already, we're in the first uh, chapter of the Gospel of John, John chapter 1. We're going to pick things up in verse 19. If you hear last week, you know that we started um, the beginnings of the Gospel of John, talked about John's prologue, how he introduces the Gospel and sets the pace for everything that he's going to discuss, those things that he's going to teach us. And this morning we turn our attentions to verse 19 and we'll read through verse 34. Before I read that passage to you, I want to share a quote about the role of prophets, and it comes from the pen of of Eugene Peterson. Here's the quote, and then I'll explain why. Peterson writes, What prophets do is purge our imaginations of this world's assumptions on how life is lived, on what counts in life. Over and over again, God the Holy Spirit uses prophets to separate his people from the lies and illusions They have become accustomed to and put us back on the path of simple faith in obedience and worship of God and of the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ in defiance of all that the world admires and rewards. Prophets train us in discerning the difference between the ways of the world and the ways of Jesus, keeping us present in the presence of God. Why are we talking about prophets? Why do we need to define what a prophet is? Well, we are going to look this morning on the last prophet, if you will, in the vein of Old Testament prophets, John the Baptist. This whole passage, 19 through 34, is about John's ministry and how he is in his ministry pointing to Christ. And there's there's some things about this definition of what a prophet is just to kind of float in our minds as we go through and we talk about John's uh, ministry uh, among us, and it's, it's John, the gospel of John articulates it for us, is to be reminded and let this, this passage in John's ministry remind us of what counts in life, uh, to be reminded of, of what a true truth is, if you will, what is important to us, to be able to discern in our hearts what's, what's the world speaking at us and, and to us and what's really important. And trusting John's ministry will do that for us this morning as we look at this passage. So if you're able, let's stand together for the reading of God's word. John chapter 1, starting in verse 19. Now this was John's testimony when the Jewish leaders in Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Messiah. They asked him, then who are you? Are you Elijah? He said, I am not. Are you the prophet? He answered, no. Finally, they said, who are you? Give us an answer to take back to those who sent us. What do you say about yourself? John replied in the words of Isaiah, the prophet, I am the voice of the one calling in the wilderness. Make straight the way of the Lord. Now the Pharisees who had been sent questioned him, why then do you baptize if you are not the Messiah, nor Elijah, nor the prophet? I baptize with water, John replied, but among you stands one you do not know. He is the one who comes after me, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. This all happened in Bethany on the other side of the Jordan where John was baptizing. Verse 29, the next day John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, this is the one I meant what this is the one I meant when I said, A man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. I myself did not know him, 
But the reason I came baptizing with water was that he might be revealed to Israel. Then John gave his tes- this testimony. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. And I myself did not know him, but the one who sent me to baptize with water told me, The man on whom you see the Spirit come down and remain is the one who will baptize with the Holy Spirit. I have seen and I testify that this is God's chosen one. This is God's word. It's absolutely true and given to us in love. Let's pray together. Father God, we pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear all that you are for us. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Would you please be seated? When our kids were younger, and I mean uh, diapers young, at the end of the day on some nights during the week, we would have in our house, Janelle and I, my wife and I, would have a sonic run. And that typically meant that I would take an order, and uh, in the early evening I would make a run to Sonic to pick something up and, and bring it back to the house, something sweet. And I was coming back on one occasion, uh, driving back. I had the goods. I was pulling into our neighborhood, making some twists and turns, and I turned down our road that our house was upon. And as I turned down that road, these blue lights were in somebody's driveway. And, of course, you see blue lights, and you're like, what's going on? And they were literally like three or four houses away from where we were living at the time. And so I'd drive by real slowly and kind of wondering, is somebody going to jump out and run, make a run across the street? What's going on? Are we going to hear loud voices? Is this domestic? What's going on? Keep pulling by and pull into our driveway. And then a, a fire truck comes down the road, lights going, and they pull next to this house, pull out in front. I'm still watching, watching, just sitting in the driveway out looking through the window of my car, just checking things out. And of course, other neighbors were starting to come out of their houses because when you have blue and red lights reflecting off your windows, it teams tends to get some attention. So they go out and they walk outside and they're checking things out. And it looked like it was just something medical related. There just all these uh, first responders there. And it was just something medical. And I go inside and I tell Janelle what had happened. And she's like, okay. Or maybe you've had this happen. You are making a road trip. And a two- or three-hour-away road trip, going to a game or going to visit family or something of that nature, going down 95, going down 26, you're making good time, and all of a sudden brake lights, slow, 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 stop, move, stop, move, stop, move, stop. And you just kind of figure what's going on is that somebody's, there's some kind of accident probably up front, and people are, are driving slow because they're staring at it. They're checking things out, like what's going on? They've got a rubberneck, and you're thinking, if everybody would just drive quickly or just drive without looking, I wouldn't be stopped here. I could get there on time. This wouldn't, wouldn't be like this. And, of course, what happens? You pull in closer. You get to that point to the, where the bottleneck has started, and what do you do? You stare. You look out the window. What's going on? I can't believe this happened. Man, that looks really bad. I'm glad that's not me. And you move on. There's, something, uh, there's some things that come into our, our vision that we have to stare at, that we have to look at, that we tell ourselves, don't look, don't look, but, it's, but we just have to look and see what's going on. In a sense, this is what's, what's going on with John the Baptist and his ministry, that there's something special about his ministry that everybody's eyes are captivated by him. Uh, there's people out, these religious officials going out to check him out. What is going on? They've, they've got to look. They've got to see. They've got to check out this ministry and understand 
what it perhaps means and what it is that God may be communicating to them. And so it's in this vein that I want us to look at this passage. What does God have to teach us through the ministry of John the Baptist and how God has called him to be this, this forerunner of Christ, this, this last great prophet? What do we learn about him and what do we learn about his ministry? What do we learn about what it means to be uh, identified with Christ? Three things. I want to look at how John saw himself. I want to look at how John saw Jesus and what we should see, how John saw himself, uh, how John saw Jesus, and then what we should see, uh, how John saw himself. This is really the, the biggest point. How John saw himself was, the shorter answer is, he saw himself as unworthy. He saw himself as unworthy. And you saw that he says to the, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. But before we get to the significance of that, let's, let's unpack the passage just a little bit. Uh, John has been doing ministry probably for maybe a year or so. Uh, he's the son of a priest, son of a pastor, and he's been at it uh, out there working outside the city limits, uh, baptizing, making this, this baptism of repentance. And he's attracted a lot of attention. These religious figures, these uh, Pharisees, Levites, come to John and say, who are you? What, what is your ministry all about? He's, he's got enough critical mass that the religious authorities, the powers that be, they want to know what's going on. They don't want to be left out. And they ask him at one point, are you Elijah? Now, if you know your Old Testament history, that's, that's a fair question. It sounds kind of odd to us. It's a fair question. Elijah is one of these great Old Testament prophets who never really dies. The scriptures tells us that, that he's just whisked off and taken off into heaven. There's no, there's no funeral. There's, there's no body, so to speak. And in accordance with Malachi, maybe they reason this is Elijah. He's come back and he's, he's doing his ministry and this is pretty significant. And John says, what? No, that's, that's not who I am. I'm not Elijah. And then they say to him, are you the prophet? They're probably thinking when they say the prophet, uh, words that, that Moses spoke in Deuteronomy uh, chapter uh, 18, where it speaks of a prophet like Moses coming on the scene. And they say, are you the prophet? Is that who you are? And John says, no, that's not me. And they're still wondering. It's like, you've got to give us an answer. You're, you're telling us who you're not, but what are you? And John quite famously says, I'm the voice of the one crying in the wilderness, quoting uh, the ministry of Isaiah. But there's something interesting that he says as well. There's like four I am statements that John makes about himself. One of them is, I'm the voice. Another one is, I'm unworthy. I'm unworthy to untie his sandals, speaking about Christ, speaking about the, the one that he is uh, prophesying about, talking about, uh, gathering so much attention Four, and this is really more than a, than a, than a passing statement. This is uh, more than just, you know, John just being modest, uh, but it has some real significance uh, for us. And I don't think it's an accident that he says something like this. Uh, if, you had a, if you were a disciple and you had a, a master, they, they could ask you to do a lot of things, but they couldn't ask you to untie sandals like this. They couldn't ask you to deal with, with feet like this. That they, Even servants don't want to do that and don't do that. And John is saying, I'm not even worthy to do that. I'm, I'm not even good enough to do something like that. And John is famous for this, for this, this humility. 
for, for making the issue, it's not about me, but it's about Christ. And another point, it says that John says of himself, I, I need to decrease and Christ must increase. So this, this, this deep, rich humility and pointing towards somebody else, specifically pointing towards Christ. And the takeaway or the, the, the principle, the application I want us to, to make for ourselves is how you judge yourself is so important in how you live the Christian life. How you judge yourself, how you assess yourself has huge implications for how you live the Christian life and what you believe about the gospel. Uh, John says that he is unworthy. Says that he's unworthy. And he says that I'm even unworthy to untie his sandals. And so he's saying, in comparison to Christ, I'm unworthy. I'm not, I'm, I'm not worthy compared to who he is. Now, now, John, it's pretty significant if religious leaders are leaving the city, they're coming to you and they're asking you, are you the Messiah? Are you Elijah? Are you the prophet? I mean, you're, you, you've developed a, a pretty good reputation. And John, in response to that, says, no. I, I know I'm doing a lot and there's a lot of stuff happening and that ministry seems to be real powerful and impactful, but I'm unworthy. I'm unworthy to, to, to even untie the ones, uh, the shoes of the person I am pointing to. And I want to land a little bit longer on that, that idea that John was unworthy in comparison to Christ. As he looked at God, he saw himself as unworthy. Because again, how you assess yourself has implications for how you, what you do with the gospel in your life. Meaning this, you can say that you're unworthy, but you can say you're unworthy in comparison to the standards that you have for yourself. You can say, I'm unworthy because I know I should be this kind of person, I should be doing these kinds of things and saying these kinds of things and having this kind of discipline. And when you fall short of the, the standard that you have for yourself, you say, well, I'm unworthy. And all you're doing is just kind of self-pity and kind of beating yourself up, okay? It's, it's not really pointing you towards more of Christ in your life. Or you can say to yourself, I'm unworthy in light of this person, in comparison to that person, I'm really unworthy. I'm not, I'm not as good as them. I'm not as disciplined as them. I'm not as, I don't have as much character as they do. You can compare yourself to other people and say that I'm not, and say to yourself, I'm not worthy. This is just being self-absorbed. And again, you're not moving towards Christ. But when John says, I'm unworthy, I'm not even worthy to untie his shoes, it's an unworthiness that, that's rooted in and is driving him towards Christ to want to have and then to know this Messiah that comes and takes away the sins of the world. How you judge yourself has implications for how you receive the gospel. Maybe think about it uh, like this. Paul says this about himself in 1 Corinthians chapter 4. He says, "But, but with me it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I'm not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. The the point of that passage is to to bring out, for Paul, what does he care about? Whose opinion is he concerned with? He doesn't care about the people he's writing to. He's concerned about their opinion and their thoughts and ideas, but He's not going to live, it's not going to be a good or bad day if they think good of him or, or ill of him. Uh, he doesn't even think, care what, his opinion of himself doesn't even matter. All that matters to Paul is 
what God thinks of him. What is God's verdict? What is God's judgment? What is God's assessment of him? That's the thing that carries the day for him. And so you can see there's a tremendous freedom that comes with that. You know, people may be critical of us. They may say negative things of us. But in a sense, we can be lighthearted about that. We can take those criticisms seriously and not, we don't want to dismiss them. But we don't, our, our, who we are and our attitudes uh, are not bound up with what other people say about us. Because at the end of the day, all that matters is what God thinks of me, what God says of me. And so certainly he says that we're unworthy, and that drives us to Christ, and it drives us to what he says is true of us. That there's no condemnation. If you belong to the Son, you believe in him, there's no condemnation. That you are a son and daughter of the King, and, and that's what matters to you. That's what carries weight to you. That's what carries import into your life and how you're living it. And so you can imagine the freedom that comes with that, the freedom to know his rest, his contentment, his peace, that goes outside of our circumstances, that's not tainted by our circumstances and what's going on in our relationships. That's how John saw himself. Let's think about uh, two more things, how John saw Jesus. And again, this is a, a shorter point. For all that we need to look at is what he says in verse 29. He says, look or behold, other translations, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. In that short statement, he's telling us that this is who Christ is. This is what the Messiah is about. This is his agenda. This is what drives him to be the lamb that takes away the sins of the world. That's what his leadership is about, is about our ultimate salvation. And this delegation is coming out to them, to John. They're saying, are you the Messiah? No, I'm not the Messiah. Who are you? I'm not Elijah. I'm not the prophet. And he says in verse 23, I am the voice of the one calling in the wilderness, make straight the way of the Lord. John is a voice, and he's a voice that communicates us, this is who Jesus is. This is who the Messiah is. This is what he is about. He is the Lamb of God. Now, that's a weighty statement. That's, that's very significant. He doesn't say he's, that, that's the Lamb of God. That's the, the muscle of God. But John says that's the Lamb of God. And that word lamb is, is such a rich and, and deep word because we know our Old Testaments. We know that there's these snapshots that we have in the Old Testament where a lamb as a sacrifice is very important and very significant. And it speaks into what John is saying to us now in this gospel. You remember the story of Abraham and Isaac. Abraham, God says to him, you're going to have a child. It's going to be the special child, Isaac. And he, Abraham waits 25 years, 25 years to have this son. He finally has him. When Isaac is teenagerish kind of age, God comes to Abraham and says, I want you to take your son, the son that you love, and I want you to sacrifice him. Well, you're going to do it at this place at this time, and I want you uh, to do that. And Abraham does that. And there's this, this memorable scene, I think, where Abraham and Isaac are, are walking up the mountain, and they've got all this gear, wood, knife, equipment for sacrifice. And Isaac it turns to Abraham, to his father, and says, we've got the stuff, but where's the sacrifice? If you're a dad, what, what do you say? Abraham simply says, God will provide. God's going to provide a lamb, a lamb for sacrifice. There's a story in, in the book of Exodus we saw over the summer, this long story of how Israel is, is, is held in slavery 
And they've cried out to God, God, deliver us from this bondage that we're captive, that we're held in hostage to. And God sends all these plagues to get, uh, to get Pharaoh to release his people. And it finally takes this last plague. The angel of death is going to sweep through Egypt, and he's going to kill the firstborn of each family. And God turns to the Israelites and says, you are protected from this angel of death if you've got the mark of the lamb over your door. Encouraging them, commanding them to make a sacrifice, make this sacrificial lamb, put the blood out, and death will pass over you. You will not be exposed to it. A lamb and sacrifice, huge effects. In Isaiah 52 and 53, where it talks about this, this coming servant of the Lord, this coming Messiah, he's described in part as a lamb. A lamb who is silent before his shearers. So when John the Baptist says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, we understand the weight and the meaning of those words. This Lamb, the Lamb, the last Lamb, the the last need for a sacrifice, God is giving. And it's going to be the chosen one that's going to do it. It's going to be the Messiah that's going to do it. He is going to receive our judgment He's going to receive all the punishment that that, that we deserve for all the things that that we break, all the commandments that we fail to follow through on, the way we respond to our spouses, the way we respond to our our children and our employees and people all around us, all those things that, that Jesus is going to bear the weight of that as the lamb. And he does that voluntarily. There's that beautiful picture of Jesus in the garden Jesus wrestling with the Father about the cross and, and taking this, this cup of wrath to drink it. And at the end of this, he says, not my will be done, but your will be done. He voluntarily goes. John chapter 10, which we'll look at later on, the, Jesus as this lamb who voluntarily lays down his life. The lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The lamb of God who has come and taken away your sin. The obvious application is, who is Jesus to you? Is he your lamb that has taken away your sin? Is he your lamb that you continue to look to in the face of your unworthiness, in the face of, in response to your guilt and your shame, are you going to him as the lamb that has taken away your sins? And do you know the reality, the joy of forgiveness that that brings us. The last thing, what we should see, what we should see. When our daughter was five-ish, she had so much energy and such a positive force, we enrolled her in uh, bitty basketball, which is bitty basketballs for these little five-year-olds to be exposed to playing basketball. We signed her up at the Y, and she was part of uh, one of four teams, four bitty basketball teams. There weren't a lot of practices. It was just... You're just going to be learned by throwing you into the deep end just by playing basketball. So the schedule comes out, the date comes, and we go there to the Y in this evening. It's the first game. And uh, they've got the teams all separated out. And they actually call out each player by name, which was kind of humorous, I think, because it's like taking themselves very seriously. Each player comes out after their name is introduced. They get their positions, and the coach is, is lining them up. It's like herding cats if you've seen these kinds of things. And the coach, right before, you know, the whistle's about to go off. They're about to start the game. And the coach, you know, gets 
uh, with his team, and he gets make sure he has eye contact with each one of them, that they're looking at, at him, and he simply says to him, where is your goal? You know, where are you going? When you get the ball, where is your goal? Because you know how confusing it is and disorienting it is if you've never done this before, trying to learn all this stuff that's coming at you. Where is your goal? John the Baptist is simply saying to us, where is your goal? What direction are you moving in? Are you moving towards the Messiah? He is, John says, I am the voice of the one crying in the wilderness. Are you listening to me? Are you listening to this prophet call you towards the goal of Christ, to move you in the direction of him? And what's, what's beautiful about John in his ministry is not only does he, is he this voice, but his life is a model of what it looks like to receive that voice and to know that voice and to know those, those promises that come with it. it. What does he say? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He models, in a sense, this is what it looks like to, to know that truth, to know that reality. Think about the, the courage that John has in his ministry, that he's standing up to some powerful religious figures and saying true truth to them. The, the, the freedom that, that John has to do this ministry there on the outskirts of town. His whole experience is that, 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 that John, the, John the Baptist in these verses says to us, are you moving in the right direction? As you assess your life this morning, are you moving towards Christ? Do you want more of him in your life? Do you see more of your need for, for forgiveness and grace and substitution and to, to move closer to him, to know that the, the, the safest place I can be I know there's all this anxiety. I know there's all this fear around me. There's all this uncertainty. The safest place for me to be is with my Savior, is with the Lamb who takes away the sins of the world. The last thing is this, very briefly, and I'll I'll close in prayer. In verse 29, it says, look, or it says, behold, the Lamb of God. It's really a commandment. John commanding us to behold, look, at the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. See him. Envision him. Watch him. Be attentive to him. In the New Testament, this word behold or look is used like 29 times. John uses it 15 times. 15 times John is imploring us to look or to behold. What are you looking at? What are you beholding? Are you looking at your, your, your resume, so to speak? Are you looking at what you've done and what you haven't done and you feel condemned by that list? Or are you looking at Christ? Are you looking at him as your lamb who has taken away your sins? Many of you know the reality of that and that there's been that moment when you, yes, I believe he is my lamb. But are you looking at him now to continue to be that lamb? to continue to be that sacrifice for you, to to be that person in your life that says, what makes me worthy is what God has done for me. What makes me worthy is God's love for me. The freedom that's there, the contentment that's there, the peace that's there, the joy that's there, when you simply behold, when you simply look. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that you would get our hearts to a place where we can behold you.
where we can look to you. We're distracted by our phones. We're distracted by our screens. We're distracted by our activities. We're distracted by our responsibilities. Give us space to behold you, to look to you, and to know you as the Lamb of God who takes away all of our sins. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.